The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. questions and then we'll open it up to the audience because I'm sure you all have many questions for Beth. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about just the role the government is playing in GM right now. And let me start kind of relating it to some of the things that you were talking about um, and, and maybe thinking about it sort of independent of all the restructuring and everything that's going on. But what role do you believe is appropriate moving forward uh, for the government in terms of helping uh, to bring about some of this transition in energy efficiency and putting in the infrastructure uh, to have the right kinds of fuels available. I mean, how, how does the government play into that process of making that work so that the kinds of automobiles that GM and others are developing will have access to what they need? Yes, I mean, it's very important that um, when you look at where General Motors is now, the government has a major role in what we're doing every day. The Automotive Task Force has been um, very, very good to work with as far as really learning our business from the bottom up, how we design vehicles, how we sell vehicles, every aspect of the business. But in the environment and energy equation, um, there's a role for automakers. Um, certainly we have the important job of making sure the technologies are out there, that we're doing what we can to reduce CO2 emissions, to um, improve fuel economy. But in order to do that, you have to have a system. You have to have the, the automobiles companies doing what they need to do, the energy companies doing what they need to do, and you need government to have a role to really develop the infrastructure. So as we have these great scientists and engineers that are designing these vehicles, if there's not a place for people to plug in their vehicles at the, the end of the day at their home, the Volt can certainly do that easily. But if you're in a, a complex or you want to do it at work and you want to understand the smart grid, everybody has to work together on that. Developing infrastructure such as hydrogen, California and the fuel cell partnership along with the hydrogen and highway program has been doing a good job of trying to develop that infrastructure. But we need to do a lot more and we need to do it at a national level. And the same thing with biofuels. Uh, we really need to develop the infrastructure so when these next generation biofuels uh, that are so important uh, to reducing dependence on petroleum, when they're available and ready, we need to have stations where people can take their flex fuel vehicles and be able to uh, get the right fuel. So you've mentioned a couple of times the Automotive Task Force. So give us sort of an Automotive Task Force Lesson 101 and what their role is in working with you, how GM works with that task force, and how that's going to play out over the next few weeks and months as GM works through these issues and, and works through the possibility of bankruptcy. The Automotive Task Force um, has represented us from all areas of government. So um, in the area I work in, there's someone from EPA and Department of Energy. Um, all those various agencies are involved. They've spent, um, a group of people have spent a lot of time in Detroit. We've also gone to Washington. But they've looked at every aspect of the business. So um, dealing with um, union situations, dealing with what we should be doing with dealer restructuring, um, looking obviously at the financials, um, working with the bondholders. So all those different pieces of work have been going on. Um, the task force is obviously very interested in making sure um, General Motors is setting up a viable business uh, for the future and we'll continue to work through that process with them. As 
this process moves forward. Uh, one of the comments in one of the discussions we were having earlier, you, you commented that at the end of the day, um, GM will very likely be owned majority by unions and the government, a very different sort of ownership model than has been uh, the history of GM and a very different ownership model than probably any company has experienced before. How do you see that playing out and, and how does that impact the company's ability to continue to innovate and, and try to succeed in the environment that we're in? Uh, given, I mean, I think we don't always think of government and unions as being overly innovative and quick to change. <laughs> and so, so how does that play out and how do you see that working in terms of sort of a governance structure? Well, we're sort of not sure how it all plays out um, because we're inventing this as we go. Um, but I think there is a commitment for innovation and making sure we're setting up a business model that will be successful. Um, we have, in the auto industry, had the same business model and we've had the same kind of products for 100 years. And the question is, as the world is developing and all the various countries around the world want personal transportation, does that model work? And clearly, um, when you see the downturn in the global economies, um, our business model does not work. And so what we have to do is continue to work with all the various stakeholders. Um, going forward, because of the intense you know, legacy costs that we have um, from a pension and health care, that's really the VIBA or the Voluntary Benefit Program um, that is really with the, the UAW as well as the government funding, it will be a very different structure. Um, but the core of our business is making great cars and trucks, making sure we have high quality, great designs, making sure that you know we do our part, as I mentioned, on fuel economy and emissions. I mean, that's the core of the business. If you don't have great cars and trucks and have a great relationship with customers, it doesn't matter what kind of business processes you have or what kind of great functions you might have that are doing great at purchasing or suppliers or whatever. So we need to get back to our core business, which is continuing to do that. One last question I have for her, and then I'll open it up and see what, what you all would like to ask about. Um, but uh, again, in an earlier discussion we had, you commented on how public everything is about GM. I mean, you've been a public company for a long time, but what you're going through now is far more public. And you even made the comment that your competitors sort of know everything there is to know about you because it is so public as you go through this process. How does that affect sort of your ability to operate and be successful as a company when everything you do, there's, there, in, a, in some ways there's, there's no sort of competitive advantage to any knowledge that you have because it's out there. So how, are, how is the company responding to that? How does that change the way you operate? Yeah, it's very challenging because it's always good to be transparent. Uh, but certainly in the, in the business world, you have a number of things that are competitive. For example, when we had to go for our initial funding, we understand that taxpayers need to know exactly what we're doing, what our viability plans are. Um, but having to lay out our future product programs, and even in, in my world, showing people what we predict our fuel efficiency will be, well, people can exactly you know, reverse engineer and know what kind of products, what size of products, what kind of technology you might be putting on. And so it really is a totally different environment. Um, but I do think we have maintained the ability to continue to have innovation and make sure, obviously, we still have intellectual property rights um, and a number of patents, for example, on the Volt or the Chevy um, fuel cell Equinox vehicle you saw. So I think it's a challenging environment. Um, because everything is laid out there. In some ways, it's, um, it presents a great opportunity. You know, everything is out there. So in, in working with government and working with uh, all of our various stakeholders, 
everybody sees everything. And so everybody has to join with us to figure out how do we solve all of these problems and move forward in a way that will be successful in the future. Great. What questions do you all have for Beth? Yes, Gary. Very good question. Um, certainly when we look at, at this, we really wanted to look at it as a system. So as we look at electric vehicles, that's why we have a partnership with the Electric Power Research Institute, making sure people are looking at the various aspects of energy. Um, I think a couple things have to take place. You have to have a national energy policy, and you have to get serious about what our country wants to do on the renewable energy front, so so-called greening of the grid. Um, what we think is exciting about things like the plug-in hybrids and also the electric vehicles is the fact that if you green the grid, if you get a more renewable source similar to a lot of the activities you have in California, then you're also greening transportation. And so we would have um, the ability to be able to do both at the same time. Uh, we also have to look at things such as um, climate policies, um, climate change. We're members of the U.S. Climate Action Partnership working on uh, at a national level. Can we get a cap and trade program in place um, so we can have a cap on emissions and then figure out how you trade and figure out how the various um, renewables will be uh, justified there, low carbon fuel standard for transportation, renewable fuel standards for energy companies. Um, but you're right, it's very challenging. It's very challenging with respect to uh, nuclear, you know, how long does it take to put a nuclear plant in? We just decided we're not going to do Yucca Mountain anymore, so how are we going to store nuclear waste? Um, and are we serious about really getting to you know, clean energy sources for the United States? But again, I think there's progress being made. Depends what state you're in as far as um, how much renewables. But I think over a period of time, if we have a commitment, we certainly can do that. We had a question. Did you have a question? Back here? Yeah. Start with one, and then we'll work through <laughs> as we go through. I thought he was going to ask me a tough environmental question from the reception questions we had. Um, Corvette is alive and well. Everybody loves a Corvette. My neighbor just asked me that because he wanted to buy one and wanted to know if it was going to be around. Uh, yes, Corvettes will be around. Um, it's obviously a very popular vehicle. Um, I just mentioned the Camaro because it was new. I was just highlighting some of the new vehicles. Um, and we have looked at, as you know, intensely at all the various brands. Um, GMC and Chevrolet um, do have uh, trucks. Both have trucks in that brand. Um, but GMC is a very, very successful brand for us. Um, it works very well. There's a very uh, good set of loyal customers. 
And so at this point, they're not in competition with each other. They do have a, a set of customers that work on Chevy trucks and work on GMC trucks. One of my earliest recollections as a child was the GMC truck that we had on the farm I grew up on in Oklahoma. It was a light blue GMC truck, and I remember that. I like the story. We can get that years. in a commercial, I <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay, back here. Let me go back here. And go ahead. Go ahead. Actually, there's been tremendous progress on the battery side in really looking at um, how the lithium-ion batteries will progress so that we can able, enable something like the Volt. Um, and so our battery labs and our engineering folks are looking at all the activities to try to improve the ba battery charging time, et cetera, because you know, people don't, uh, we're pretty um, anxious to be able to get up and go anytime we want. The nice thing about the extended range electric vehicle, though, is that your ability to generate electricity while you're, you're driving, so it's not relying just on you know, the plug-in charge. But our folks are looking at all those aspects of the vehicle. Back here, and then we'll come down to front. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very good question. Um, I like the compliments at the beginning of the question. <laughs> um, you're right. There are um, wonderful scientists and engineers at General Motors. I remember when I first came um, as a lawyer and I, my first um, permit I was working on, I was just amazed by the research uh, capability and all of the engineers um, that are at General Motors. Um, many of the innov innovations and inventions that are taking place um, it takes a while for it to get into product lineups. I don't think that's unique just to General Motors. Um, many of these um, are things that we have to make sure that customers are going to accept. Um, there are also tremendous regulatory pressures um, on, we're probably the high, most highly regulated um, product um, in the world. Um, so there's all those tensions that have to go through. There are also in the United States, um, frankly, there's a lot of litigation. So a number of the issues with respect to a certain technology, um, there's a lot of things you have to go through and test and um, get satisfied by all the various agencies before it can actually go on the product, um, which is unfortunate that that would sometimes stifle um, innovation. 
uh, but that's just the nature of the business here. Um, some of the other companies do try out various innovations and technologies in other places in the world. Um, but you know, we are you know, based uh, here in the US from a general standpoint. Um, so what we're trying to do, though, is get faster to market. I mean, that's very important to do in a competitive way and to be able to get these technologies so that customers uh, will accept them um, and also can afford them. One of the most important things for us is we have great technologies, but if they're not affordable and we can't get them out in high volume, they're not going to make a difference for environment, safety, et cetera. So we're always balancing all of those issues. Down here in front, and then we'll come back to you. Another element is going to be the uh, human side of change. And I'm wondering whether you've given thought to, I've been hearing about eco-driving, how one accelerates, how one brakes, et cetera, whether there's going to be a learning curve for the consumer. And uh, how tough will that be? How difficult will that be? And has GM thought of uh, how, how it uh, will tackle that? Actually, I thought you were talking about the cultural change with everything we're going through. <laughs> See, my mind automatically goes right there. about that after you answer this question. <laughs> yes. Um, actually, yes. And what we've done is, we, as we are developing these technologies, we've had the engineers and scientists working on the product development. We also have had education efforts underway. And so, for example, with the fuel cell and project driveway, getting customers behind a fuel cell vehicle and understanding what it's like to be able to use hydrogen and what, how it sounds differently. Um, there also is very much an interest in the eco-driving piece. You're absolutely right that customers have a role to play in how much fuel you save and how much emissions come out of your vehicle. And so making sure that there is an education effort is really very critical. Um, and we, you know, we'll continue to do that. The Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers does have an eco-driving program. Uh, we've had some activities for some time uh, with respect to website activities and, and customer um, interaction and, and dealerships. Uh, we also have a, a K through 12 program. Um, we had weekly reader series talking about what it would be to like to have a hydrogen fuel cell vehicle, what it would be like for a plug-in, um, did a whole series on biofuels. So the next generation is very familiar with these kinds of activities as opposed to some of us that have been driving the same thing for so long. Uh, we want them to be very familiar uh, with the technologies. Well, while we're talking about behavioral changes, talk a little bit about the cultural changes that are having to take place and how you bring that about in a culture that's been around for over 100 years and get people to change more quickly and innovate. Yeah, it's very challenging. We were talking earlier, um, in crisis, um, as one person in Washington said, is a terrible thing to waste. Uh, so you have to make sure you're really focused on the important aspects. And uh, there's a lot of opportunity in it, and you don't have a lot of time um, so one of the cultural changes is people have to take more risks, um, have to be accountable for your decisions, but also recognize that you need to have you know, the data in front of you, make the decision, but you can't wait. Um, we don't have a lot of time to wait or to get more data, more information. So we're kind of operating on the 80-20 rule, you know, try to make the best decisions you can with the data in front of you. Um, we do think at this point in time, if we wait too long to make a decision, it has uh, you know, serious consequences. So um, the question of how do you get these things fast to market, how do you uh, take more risks, um, certainly not taking risks on quality or the focus on, on the customer and things like that, but making sure that as a uh, culture that we're willing to, to step out there and, and be very different. When you're reinventing a whole company, um, as we talked about, there's not time to do the um, how, do, how do people feel from an organizational development standpoint? 
get input from everyone. Some of these things you just have to say, this is the decision, and then get people to you know, buy into it that way. Still right here. Uh, first of all, I want to applaud you for the efforts that GM is doing when it comes to electricity and hybrid uh, fuel technology. So my question is kind of referring to, to, that, to that great change in the culture of GM. So my question is the following. Um, <clears throat> Japanese companies have had a first moving advantage when it comes to hybrid technology. 2 with respect to the, the hybrids, certainly uh, Toyota and Honda have had an advantage in the marketplace. I think it's very interesting to see the dynamic in the marketplace right now with Toyota and Honda, their competition with their, their, their new hybrids. Um, what we have decided to do, we, our hybrid program was a little bit different. We had a hybrid system that was on our bus systems. Um, and then we put it in our larger vehicles, our SUVs and our trucks, because really that was a strength for us. Um, many customers come to General Motors thinking all we have is trucks. Um, as I mentioned during the presentation, we have a lot of cars and crossovers as well. But we thought it was important to put hybrid systems on trucks and SUVs because if people wanted the functionality of an SUV or a truck, that we wanted to be able to give them technology that would help them save fuel. You save more fuel that way than you would putting a hybrid system on a small vehicle. Now that was our strategy. Right or wrong, that's what it was. Um, and as we progress on that strategy, we now are entering, uh, obviously, into the car market. We felt with the Chevy Volt, um, it was an opportunity to kind of reinvent the whole look at that whole segment of advanced technology. So. Um, being able to have an extended range electric vehicle where you can actually plug in. Um, and now you see others are coming in with plug-in hybrids as well. So I think what we were trying to do there is we have our hybrids, we have our uh, flex fuel vehicles, we have our fuel cell vehicles. We're playing in all those because, frankly, we just don't know which one's going to be a winner or if there's going to be just uh, one solution, which we don't think there is. So then we wanted to say, okay, how can we show that we really are innovative and that's where we came up with the elegant solution of the extended range electric vehicle. Um, to answer your question with respect to uh, models and price points, that, that's a challenge for us in this current economy obviously and what we want to try to do is make sure that we have um, the best fuel economy in the segment, the highest quality, great design and then be able to price the vehicles um, for the value um, that they, they bring um, and try to get away from the incentives. Um, the incentive program is interesting. I mean, that was all started after 9-11. Um, I don't know how many people remember the Keep America Rolling um, advertisements and incentives because we really wanted people to get back to getting out and purchasing vehicles. What happened, though, is we, we never stopped those incentives. So they served a purpose for a period of time was to get people in the showroom, get America back shopping and, and producing uh, great vehicles. Uh, but then the incentives kept on for a long time and that kept the competition in the marketplace and uh, we got away from the value of the vehicle. So we want to try to get you know, back to that world. One of the challenges right now for you all, and I assume Chrysler's probably experiencing the same thing, is just a great reluctance on the part of consumers to 
buy a car given the challenges that you're dealing with. How do you get past that? I mean, do, do you have to get through the threat of bankruptcy or the bankruptcy and get to the other side of that? Or at what point, because it's sort of become a vicious cycle downward in trying to build back that confidence. And how are you all talking about that? What are you doing to try to overcome that? Well, it's very challenging, for example, for everybody in the global economy. I mean, some of our competitors had the worst losses they've ever had. So this is not just a GM issue. Um, what's happened, though, is because we can't get off the front page of the paper that there is a reluctance by some. I mean, we still have some very loyal customers and people that are coming into the showrooms, just not enough of them. Um, and so I th think what we need to do is continue to communicate and um, get through this this challenging time, make sure that people know we have great cars and trucks out there. We have to figure out the whole dealer piece of it. So there's going to be a number of bad news days before um, we get beyond this. And what we're trying to do is, again, just trying to communicate over and over again um, that we're here, we're reinventing uh, the company, we are going to go down to the four brands, um, really better models, high quality vehicles, and get people you know, back in the showrooms. The fact that the economy will get better at some point, and it will get better, uh, then that will also help because a lot is the overall economy issues. Now, one of the things that we talked about last year was just the talk of bankruptcy um, was something we just would not do because of all the focus groups and all the uh, research we had done had shown that that was going to really scare people off. It's helped with respect to um, the government having the warranty backed mm -hmm. so people can go in and know that their warranty will be honored. Great. Wonderful. You had a question right next to him. Yeah. Oh, did you earlier have a question? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Obviously, um, I didn't do such a good job already. Um, the 40 miles is 40 miles without using a drop of gasoline. So it's not the equivalent of 50 miles per gallon in a Prius. Um, and what happens is the EPA ha doesn't have any test procedures yet, so we're working with them on how do you calculate the fact that you're going to go 40 miles without using any gasoline at all, and then you're going to be using some gasoline on board to generate electricity. So it will be way beyond the, the Prius number. Um, so that, that won't be hard to market. There'll be other challenges when people are trying to be able to uh, get in the marketplace um, and compete with that. But from a comparison standpoint, that will, that will be fine. Let me go to Bill, and then I'll go back over here to Steve. Is developing a superior marketing program part of your future planning strategy? Yes, very much so. Uh, one of the things that we have learned through this challenging time is there is a tremendous gap between perception and reality. There is just a, you know, decades of people that really have had maybe one bad experience with GM car in the 80s and have never come back to learn what our products are like today. So we have a tremendous gap. And actually, there are many believe that the difference between our success or, or not um, is based on our ability to be able to communicate that and advertise and market in such a way that it gets people back into our products, which is key to our success. 
So related to your comment, if you had to identify sort of the biggest misperception out there, or in, especially in all this media coverage, the thing that's been said about GM that's the least true or the most misleading, what would you say if you could clear up some misperception? Well, on the product side, I think the misperception that we only make trucks, mm -hmm. that we have a low fuel efficiency, which you see from all the data, we have very, very good fuel economy and segment leading in, in a lot of the areas. Um, and then quality perceptions. GM makes very, very high quality vehicles that are on top of a number of charts and it just, it just doesn't break through. And again, I think it's, you know, you sell a car one person at a time. So if someone has, you know, the story is someone has a good experience, they might tell a few people. If someone has a bad experience, they tell hundreds of people. So, I mean, it's trying to get people back um, into the cars because they're very different than they were in the past. Steve. Yeah, that's a very good question. The new, first generation of these technologies are expensive. Um, so I think in, in some of the conclusions from the Automotive Tax Task Force, um, they talked about the Volt, the first generation, being expensive. Um, and so what you need to do in, in anytime you're inventing um, technologies such as this, the first generation is expensive. You have to go through three or four generations, just like the hybrid systems have gone through that, um, to get them affordable. And that's very important to do. No technology or no business, as you all know from um, studying here, you cannot survive if it's going to be subsidized the whole time. The market must drive people to this in great volume for it to be successful. So it is very important. Now, we'll see how it all shakes out with respect to which technologies, and can we drive down the cost of all these technologies as well as and continue to make the improvements on the technologies. But we believe from the research we've done so far on the extended range electric vehicles on fuel cells uh, and the great development of the batteries that we think the electrification along with continuing the push on biofuels that we should be able to over a period of time get them to be market successful. Do you have an estimated time frame for that? <laughs> I get asked that question quite a bit. I do not have an estimate, <laughs> especially in this environment. I don't know. <laughs> you have a question. Yes. There is a lot of confusion out there. We've talked about that a lot um, in our company because, you know, it's much easier if you have one thing that you're constantly marketing and communicating. Um, but we really do feel that it's important for us to be part of this overall solution. And in order to do that, we know we have to work on these various pathways. Um, again, customers basically, when they go into a showroom, as you all know, I mean, you want to look at what your personal needs are. 
and what you can afford and what your uh, functionality and uh, the product and what you need. So it's important that you know one customer at a time we try to get that education. Um, but there is a lot of confusion out there. And I think working with government, working with schools, working with um, a lot of different stakeholders, we could really improve on that uh, because there is a lot of misperception on you know, how plug-ins work, how electric vehicles work, and that kind of thing. To what extent, uh, in response to that kind of an issue, is there any collaboration among the uh, companies in the auto industry versus it's working with the government and others? Because part of that is a industry issue, not just a GM issue or a Toyota issue. Yes, we do work with the Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers on um, some eco-driving, the education pieces of it, um, but I think we can do a lot more. There's some great organizations, for example, there's a lot of confusion about diesel um, for a period of time, so there's a diesel technology forum that's done a great job of educating people about new diesels and clean diesels and things like that, so I think we need to do a lot more of it in this area. I'm going to take just a couple more questions. So let me, I'm going to, since you've asked one, I'm going to go to some folks that haven't. So we'll go back up here. I've been working on this for some time, um, and uh, it is frustrating. And I think it's very frustrating in California. I thought we really were making progress, and we have not been able to get uh, the fuel. I think some, obviously, the price of fuel, gasoline being low, does not help. Um, but I think with the new Obama administration, we're going to see more commitment for stations, and I think that's going to be across the country. Um, they, you know, obviously are very interested in us making sure we're making more flex fuel vehicles. And we've had a lot of conversation about that's great, we're committed to doing that, uh, but we really need the stations. Um, we need them across the country. And it doesn't mean we need four on every corner, like gas stations, we just need it in a, a decent uh, location so people will be able to have access to it and a little closer and more convenient than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we have, we've had some great people that work on infrastructure, both for hydrogen and for E85, and I think we'll make more progress going forward. But together uh, with some of our partners, we put together, I think, about 700 stations where we brought ethanol partners together with um, General Motors and with other folks to try to get stations in, but it just has not gone as fast as it should. Let you ask our last question. Yes, absolutely. Um, looking at materials, getting weight out, we talk about at our, some of our meetings, the most important thing at some of these is to get the weight out because you don't have to put all these advanced technologies on if you can get smaller and lighter weight uh, vehicles. Um, did Amory Lovins from Rocky Mountain Institute have you asked that question? <laughs> Every place I go, he has his carbon filter, uh, carbon, and sends it and says, this is going to work, the carbon fiber. Um, it's a little more difficult in the automobile industry. Um, first of all, expense. Um, and also uh, with respect to safety 
um, and all of the various interactions um, that happen on highways and freeways across the country. So we've been looking at materials. We have some of the best material science people. Um, so we want to look at lightweight materials and also just the size of the vehicles as well. So it's a very important piece of what we're going to do on fuel efficiency. So my last question for you. You commented on how many negative stories there have been out in the media about General Motors in, in recent months. So if you could write the headline on the Wall Street Journal about General Motors two years from now, what would you want that headline to say? Oh, that's kind of a tough, tough question. Two years from now, I'm doing day to day. Um, <laughs> um, I was trying to get you, give you a chance to get out of the day to day yeah, and look ahead. Yeah. Look to, look um, to a probably two years from now, I would say uh, GM successfully reinvented the company and the Chevy Volt is an, a perfect example. Well, we really appreciate you being here. I know this is a, such a challenging time, and, and we appreciate you taking the time to be here and educating us in a different way than we maybe get educated on a daily basis. So we appreciate it so much. It certainly learned a lot in the process. Thanks. It was a great question. Appreciate it. Thank all of you for being here. Remind you, we did a podcast earlier, so you can listen to that on iTunes University uh, shortly, and then we will take the video, and we will also have that on uh, Pepperdine's YouTube University. So if you'd like to reflect on this or share it with others, you will have the opportunity to do that. But we look forward to having you back with us next year for the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. We will be uh, putting that series together over the next month or two and then getting that information out. But we really appreciate you being here and being a part of this this year. Thank you.